0: This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Sinios Health, a new, fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Sinios Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit synioshealthcom podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is July 25th, I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined by Full.com contributor Todd Campbell via Skype. On this healthcare episode, we're covering big pharma earnings and announcements. First, we'll talk Eli Lilly, ticker LLY, and then we'll move to GlaxoSmithKline, ticker GSK. Eli Lilly is first and foremost a diabetes-focused company, and they are massive, but they also make drugs for cancer and some other diseases. And as will become important later in our discussion, they have a pretty sizable animal health division. Lilly reported earnings yesterday, and shares got a 5% lift. Eli Lilly launched the very first,
1: Christine, the very first commercial insulin for diabetes patients. They did that back in 1923. So it's probably not surprising to find out that they uh, today remain uh, the the second largest producer of of diabetes drugs. They actually get about 44% of their revenue uh, from diabetes uh, treatments. So I think it it probably just to set the stage might be helpful for um, our listeners to get a quick reminder of what exactly diabetes is. is. Is that cool with you, Christine? Go for it. All right, great. So, in normal, we'll call it normal, healthy patients, when the liver produces the simple sugar glucose or we ingest glucose from eating carbohydrates, beta cells in our pancreas create insulin. And that insulin converts the glucose into glycogen that gets stored in the liver or in the muscles that can be used for energy later on. In type 1 patients, the pancreas doesn't produce insulin. And in type to patients, we've built up a resistance to the insulin that we do produce. That's a problem because as blood sugar gets high in the bloodstream, it can wreak all sorts of havoc with the body. You can have nerve damage, it can damage the kidneys, and you can also end up with cardiovascular disease. There's about 30 million people in the U.S. alone with diabetes, and there are about 90 million people in the U.S. with pre-diabetes or elevated blood sugar levels. As a result, this is a massive market, it's a mega blockbuster market. As you mentioned, Eli Lilly, big company, with 44% of the revenue coming from diabetes that works out to a little bit better than $10 billion per year just in diabetes drugs.
0: Right. And so because diabetes is such a complex disease, there are a couple of different drug types that a company might produce um, in the diabetes space. For example, uh, Eli Lilly produces a rapid-acting insulin called Humalog. They also have a long-acting Insulin called Basilgar, which is actually a biosimilar to the brand name long acting insulin Lantus, which is a Sanofi drug. That one was huge. It had $7 billion in peak sales before it lost patent protection. So now, Uh, Your biosimilar Basilgar is coming after that, and it is taking off like a rocket, by the way. Uh, They had, what is it, in Q2 this last quarter, their sales grew 133% year over year, and that's after, in 2017, their sales surged 402%. So, this drug is really growing at bonkers levels. But that's not where they stop. They don't just stop with uh, your insulins. They also have drugs that work to uh, help manage the disease by either boosting insulin production, which is the case with GLP-1 drugs. They also have uh, Jardiance, which is an SGLT-2 inhibitor. What that does is it increases glucose excretion from the urine. So all different approaches to managing and treating this disease. And if you take it all together, as you mentioned, Todd, this is a gigantic business unit for uh, for Eli Lilly and it's growing. Their their volume growth in the last quarter was up 31% year over year.
1: Right, and that was due to those the launch of those kind of net, with next generation diabetes treatments, the SGLT two inhibitors, um, for example, and uh, basalgar obviously, which is a, a massive opportunity. And just as an aside, one of the reasons that you and I, Christine, talk a lot on the show about biosimilars and the potential opportunity for biosimilars over time. As a reminder, biosimilars are inexact copies of brand name biologic drugs that are made in living organisms, but they work as effectively. So So the FDA allows um, them to be prescribed uh, instead of that brand name drug once they lose patent patent protection. If you look at Eli Lilly's total sales in the second quarter, you know, pretty good growth for a company this big, right, Christine? Up 9% year over year to 6.4 billion. And you mentioned the diabetes volume growth. That's important because, you know, we've talked a lot and and you hear a lot in the media about price increases driving growth for a lot of these companies. You know, they had nine percent year-over-year volume growth across the entire company uh, in the second quarter. And that diabetes revenue growth obviously is is incredibly important. It'll be really interesting to see where we go from here in diabetes free, Lie Lily, though, Christine. Because Sanofi kind of fired a shot back across Eli Lilly's bow um, by launching its own biosimilar to the rapid-acting insulin Humalog earlier this year. You know, Humalog sales were 2.9 billion in 2017. It's 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 Lilly's biggest diabetes drug. So it'll be very interesting to see whether or not Adalog can sort of chip away at sales uh, as quickly as as you know Basalgar has chipped away at Sanofi's Lantus.
0: Yeah. And right now, it doesn't seem like that'll be the case. Sanofi's Biosimilar, uh, it's there. It launched earlier this year. But Humalog sales actually grew 13% year over year within the quarter. So for now, at least, it is hanging on just fine. One of the interesting parts of Eli Lilly's earnings was an announcement regarding its animal health division, which makes medicines for both companion animals, meaning pets, and also uh, livestock and animals that would be uh, not not quite as companiony, I guess. Uh, so this is not a huge shock. They had signposted back in October that they were thinking about options for this animal health business, and now they're saying that they are going to IPO a minority stake in it, which will be something less than a twenty percent stake in this company, and it'll be available uh, for people to buy into. What do you think of this, Todd?
1: This is a really interesting move that investors might want to pay attention because if you remember. Um, Christine, listeners, you know, Pfizer spun out their animal health business, Zoet, which is, was, how do you pronounce that? Zoetis. Zoetis. Yeah. Simple ZTS, anyways, uh, a few years ago, and it's been a wonderful investment. Um, so, you know, you might want to keep an eye on uh, what happens with the Blanco going forward. The reason that, that Lily's spinning it out is because it's growing relatively small um, year over year, and, you know, that's dragging down the overall performance. And I think that you know what you've got a lot of these big pharmaceutical companies looking at is saying you know maybe it makes sense to get rid of some of these slow growers, focus more on kind of these next generation solutions um, like biologics, Uh, and I think that that's why you're seeing them unlock quote unquote the value uh, by spinning out Ilanco. As you mentioned later this year, less than 20% equity will be available in that through an IPO. They plan to get rid of the rest of their shares. Um, depending, of course, on market conditions throughout the course of 2019.
0: I don't know about you, Todd, but I'm kind of assuming that right out of the gate, this company is probably going to get a pretty favorable evaluation, mostly because of how successful Zoetis has done. I mean, Zoetis carries a substantially higher price-to-earnings multiple than Pfizer itself does. It's got a market cap at this point of $40 billion. So, when you think about uh, Olanco, which is the the Eli Lilly division, that's a company that does about 13% of Eli Lilly's total revenue. So, it's it's a pretty substantial company, bringing in about three. $3 billion dollars a year. And The animal health market generally is expected to grow about 5% annually for, as far as we can tell, the foreseeable future. Um, it has a lot less generic competition than human pharmaceuticals, and it also has a shorter product development cycle. I guess because it's animals as opposed to humans, you don't quite have the as high of fences set by the FDA to get drugs to market. So The IPO is expected by the end of this year, and I'll definitely be interested to see both how the market reacts initially, and then also, what Eli Lilly's plans for that other 80 plus percent of the company is, because they have indicated that they don't intend on holding on to that forever.
1: Right. And of course, that could create some some drag as those shares come to market on the performance in the first year. And maybe that provides an opportunity for investors to start building up Um, their exposure to it. What's interesting, too, is that Eli Lilly is doing some prep work and has been doing some prep work. They've been exiting some products within that business to try and and goose sales for once they IPO it. Um, If you look at their pro forma after exiting those different business, their pro forma growth for Elanco, uh, was about eight percent year over year to 792 million in the second quarter. So it really will be uh, the devil will be in the details. People are going to want to watch closely for when um, the S one, which is the document that's filed with the SEC for an IPO, when that is filed, because read through it, it's going to be you know probably a, a pretty insightful.
0: We'll be right back with more after a quick message from our sponsor. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Sineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they have created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Sineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com podcast. Next up, GlaxoSmithKline, the British pharma giant, reported earnings just this morning. Todd, what's the scoop? Uh,
1: pretty, pretty meh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pretty meh. I mean, the, the sales were flat on an as-reported basis um, at 7.3 billion pounds uh, for the quarter. Um, if you back out currency conversion, they grew 4%. But, you know, I mean... You never know what currency is going to do, up or down, or, or whatever. I mean, it just It is what it is, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you're know, you talking about low single-digit growth one way or the other for GSK. Not an overly exciting uh, report that's moving the needle for investors.
0: So, if it's not that exciting, why are we talking about this?
1: Because there was one little tidbit in GlaxoSmithKline's um, release that was just, I found, incredibly fascinating. I think maybe you will, too. That's that the company has decided to refocus its research and development um, uh, approach, and as part of that, they're investing $300 million in the DNA testing site 23andMe.
0: Which is super interesting. So we don't talk a lot about twenty three and me, I guess because it's a private company, but I am fascinated by this organization. I mean, even dating back to when I was at the latest JP Morgan Healthcare conference, seeing their CEO speak, she is amazing. And uh, so this this is a very, very cool company. It has the largest database of genetic information out there because of consumers saying, Yes, please sequence my genes. And then they hold on to that data. And about 80% of the people who have participated have opted into research. So if 23andMe has 5 million customers, then that gives you 4 million people's genomes that have been sequenced. And now and, and this is kind of uh, causing a little bit of alarm so far that I've seen in the Twitter Twitter sphere and elsewhere. But you have this commercial company, GlaxoSmithKline, buying the rights to use that data to help grow their their portfolio and their pipeline.
1: Yeah, these are exclusive rights too. Um, about three years ago, twenty three andme established an R and D team uh, to kind try and figure out whether or not they could take some of the the information that they're gleaning from processing all of all of people's DNA. But again, you have to opt into this. This is not just using this data. You have to opt in to say it's okay. Um, and like you said, about 80% of people have, have agreed to it. And I would agree to it too, because frankly, you know, anything we can do to to develop, you know, cures and treatments that work better, I, I'm all for. Um, yeah, this is this is really an interesting decision because it gives Glaxo, Smith Klein, um, uh, exclusive access to that treasure trove of data. You know, the CEO, Glaxo's CEO, which joined relatively recent CEO Barron, he had this to say about it. He said, by studying genetically validated targets, we think we can cut the cost of development in half or, putting it in a different way, develop twice as many medicines for the same price. That's, that's a pretty... That's a pretty big uh, statement because essentially, if you can if you can validate your targets using DNA analysis better, enroll patients based on DNA analysis so that you're only enrolling the patients most likely to respond. Wow, you could probably get drugs to market more quickly, more successfully, and you know that's really important because 90% historically, 90% of drugs that head into clinical trials end up in laboratory dustbins rather than pharmacy shelves.
0: Yeah. Hal Barron had a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, He's actually a fairly new member of their team. He's the head of pharma. Um, The CEO is uh, Emma Walmsley. Oh yeah, my dad, Sorry, um, but yeah. So I mean, he had all of these great quotes about how knowing what the drug is going to target and validating it, it leads to having a significantly greater chance of ultimately demonstrating benefit in patients. So this is very exciting. I mean, this is Pfizer really or, sorry, Glaxosmithkline saying that they are going to make genetic sequencing and genetic uh, targeting the heart of their R and D efforts, and really they kind of need it. I mean, they're they're there's been pressure on this company for a while to break up their pharma unit from their consumer unit. I mean, this is a company that is straddled with a lot of debt. So the $300 million stake in uh, 23andMe is an interesting decision for that reason as well. But ultimately, their pharma unit has a pretty limited pipeline. And if they were ever going to break into two companies, they do need to turn that around before it has the legs to stand on.
1: You know what's interesting is to think about how this deal even came about happening. It's a, thank you for for clearing up that thing on Baron. You're right, uh, Richard Scheller, who's twenty um, three and Me's um, uh, head of therapeutics. He actually used to work with Baron at Genentech, so um, they're obviously very comfortable with each other. Um, it's going to be interesting to see you know how um, development of medicines occurs. They are saying that um, there are well there. There's a little interesting backstory here, Christine, that may be helpful for investors to know. The FDA had originally balked back in 2003 at 23andMe uh, sharing um, this genetic um, know, data regarding whether or not you might end up with Parkinson's or something like that with patients, um, because you know the, just because you have the genetic propensity for it doesn't necessarily mean that you will develop it. Right? That all kind of cleared up this past year, um, earlier this year, actually. Uh, when the FDA gave it the green light to share information, I think it was on 10 different diseases, including uh, Parkinson's and late onset Alzheimer's disease. So that kind of cleared the way for, for GlaxoSmithKline to step up and say, okay, the FDA has given us our blessing to, for this data to be to be uh, shared with patients. Now let's go ahead and leverage that data to create some new drugs. Parkinson's disease, actually, Christine, that's going to be their first uh, target, they say.
0: Yep, super interesting, and this is a company that is definitely firing on all cylinders. Uh, according to PitchBook estimates, this three hundred million dollar funding could value the company at around two and a half billion, which is huge, especially for a private company, and it, it just it's a good reminder to me to not neglect private companies. Um, We don't always have as much visibility into them, but they're still part of this business universe that we cover. And so, a a couple of interesting stats that I stumbled into about venture capital in healthcare. So, we're about halfway through 2018. So far this year, the total deal value for venture-backed IPOs in the U.S. stands at $6.9 billion. and this disproportionate amount of IPOs that have come out have been part of the healthcare industry. And so, it is important to keep an eye on what's going on in the private markets with funding of these various companies, because a lot of them will end up coming public. Of the 41 venture-backed companies that are based in the U.S. that have ipo over the last six months, 27 of those 41 were healthcare companies. So, VC in healthcare is pretty hot and something to keep an eye on.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned the uh, what what the guesstimates are right now and the valuation of 23 in May. That's a pretty nice return for those existing investors because last fall when they did a uh, their last funding raise, I think that they uh, estimated the valuation of the company was about 1.5 billion. So yeah, we don't know what percentage Glaxo bought, but it's obviously a fairly significant um, percentage. And unfortunately, <laughs> we can't go out and go out and buy that stock. So that raises the question: Well, should we buy Klein stock? Uh, based on its deal with 23andMe, I think that's that's kind of a tough argument to make because you know GlaxoSmithKline being such a large company, it's actually bigger than Eli Lilly, which we talked about earlier in the show. Um, you know, it's it's going to take some time for for drugs that come out of this collaboration, if they ever do, um, to to move the needle for the company. And in the meantime, GlaxoSmithKline still facing the threat of generic Advair, Advair being their top-selling asthma drug. Uh, Generic versions of that have been delayed so far by the FDA, but uh, that's not going to continue forever. At some point, um, we will see generic versions of that become available, and that will throw about $2 billion worth of um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline sales into question.
0: Yeah, this company is in a pretty tough spot. They've got debt-to-equity through the roof. Most investors in them right now are likely income investors. They're looking at that 5.3% dividend. And yet, that is threatened by the financial issues that the company has. Management has said that they plan to tie their dividend to cash flow generation soon. So, I, as an income investor, might start to cut some ties with this company, and that's not going to be good for the stock if that does happen. So, things to keep an eye on. Um, I do appreciate that Glaxo is making the efforts to look way down the road and try to right their ship for the future. And as long-term investors, that's what we like to see companies doing. But for me, at least, this stock is not a buy at the moment.
1: Yeah, of the two stocks, I think Eli Lilly makes the mo- more sense.
0: Yep. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool on.
2: These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Sineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Sineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com slash podcast.